Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. In 2019, over 10,000 possible victims of slavery were found in the UK, from men working in sports direct warehouses for barely any pay to teenage Vietnamese girls trafficked into small town nail bars. We're told that modern slavery is all around us, operating in plain sight. But is this really slavery? And is it even a new phenomenon? Why has the British Conservative Party called it one of the greatest human rights issues of our time when they usually ignore the exploitation of those at the bottom of the economic pile? This month, Pluto published a new book by writer and activist Emily Kenway called The Truth About Modern Slavery. It's a brilliant and eye-opening book in which Emily reveals how modern slavery has been created as a political tool by those in power. I'm your host, Chris Brown, and it's a real pleasure to have Emily on the show today to discuss the themes in the new book. And I'm also very excited to welcome to the panel Ella Cobain, Associate Professor in Security and Crime Science at the University College London and author of Offender and Victim Networks in Human Trafficking. And we're also joined by Molly Smith, co-author with Juno Mack of Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights. Now, before we get started, it's time to give a quick shout out to Pluto's latest crop of Patreon patrons. And they are Eva Palazzetti, Marissa Hurley, Mark Marshall, Rowana Pereira, Dr. Michael Nussbaum and Nicola Cole. So big thanks to all of the above for your continued support and solidarity. If you're listening and you want to know more about Pluto's Patreon, including all the various member benefits, which incidentally includes access to the unabridged version of Radicals in Conversation, then do head over to patreon.com forward slash Pluto Press. And now back to today's show with Emily Kenway, Ella Cobain and Molly Smith. Okay, well, firstly, let me say a big thank you to all three of you for coming on the show today. I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion. So... Emily, your new book, The Truth About Modern Slavery, uh, it looks at an issue that we've probably all heard of, uh, but perhaps know less about than we might think. So can I start off by asking you a seemingly simple question, uh, which is just what is modern slavery? <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Yeah, this is, um, this is a popular question and it may seem like a simple answer, but it's uh, a different answer to what we might expect. So to get out of the way first, the kind of basic definition a basic definition of modern slavery is that it's an umbrella term for severe forms of exploitation, which are difficult for the person experiencing them to, to leave or to refuse to be in in the first place in some way. So that umbrella term has a number of other terms people will have heard underneath it, like human trafficking. So you can understand human trafficking is a, a subset of this modern slavery idea. Forced labour, another one, domestic servitude and so on. They all have their own specific definitions and they're all kind of discrete crime types but the book doesn't really spend too much time on the ins and outs of the definition of what modern slavery might or might not mean partly because there are lots of kind of legal scholars and and people like that that have spent a lot of time on this but also because I don't think it's the most interesting question what I really wanted to do with the book is look at modern slavery not in a definitional sense, but as a political story, as a tool that is serving to further the power imbalances and inequalities that actually create severe exploitation in the first place. So this thing that we're being told is kind of a moral crusade to end this terrible thing in our society is actually a kind of wolf in sheep's clothing perpetuating the problems in the first place. And it does this by clearly drawing on our kind of public imaginary about historical slavery. Obviously, the phrase modern slavery does that. That's what we're meant to think of. And it's kind of sensationalist in that way. And it helps to get media attention to the issue. Um, but it also, it's not a kind of benign thing to draw on historical slavery in that way, because the story we tend to tell, and when I say we, I mean the government and kind of political realm, um, about historical slavery is that it was this aberration of history, this terrible evil that um, Wilberforce vanquished, which is this total erasure of the role of enslaved people in fighting back 
and indeed of the fact that it obviously wasn't an aberration it grows out of systemic racism colonialism but that's the kind of narrative you see in parliament certainly around politics and that it's this like Political issue. It's it's not a political topic. It's something we're all on the same side against. And when we look at modern slavery and how that's operating as a political story, it does the same thing. It says, well, this uniquely bad thing is happening in our society. It's an anomaly to the general socioeconomic conditions. And all of us, whether we are big brands, whether we are Theresa May, whether we are left-wing activists, whether we are Labour Party leaders, we're all against it. We're all on the same side. It's got nothing to do with party politics. And you literally hear modern slavery proponents saying this kind of thing. So that's really what the book is about. Like, what is modern slavery as a political tool? And why is this thing being used to legitimise harder borders, to legitimise really dodgy corporate practices, to tell us that we're the answer because we just need to shop ethically and so on? Yeah, and that idea that it's not just a phrase, it's not just a definition, it's an exercise of power. Mm. Yes, it's interesting that modern slavery is as much about narrative and framing and storytelling as about like a concrete reality, uh, you know, of being forced into an exploitative situation. When did this kind of rebranding, if you will, come about? When was it sort of first introduced into public discourse? And yeah, can you say a bit more about whose interests it serves? Yeah, absolutely. So you start to see it being used more and more through the 2000s. There's not kind of one moment where someone said it in a speech and that's where it all began but it's it, you see modern day slavery and this kind of way of talking about it starting to creep through it's uh, particularly spurred onwards from the uh, 2010s partly by interestingly um some philanthropic capitalists this is part of the history i explain in the book that a lot of people aren't aware of um there was a uh, australian billionaire called Andrew Forrest, nicknamed Twiggy, who, who it's, uh, his sort of business acquaintances say he could sell ice to an Eskimo. He's quite a character. And he identified that there was uh, exploitation happening in the part of his mining business and got very concerned about it. This drew him to find the work of an American academic called Kevin Bales, who had written a book in 2000 called Disposable People that talks about new slavery versus old slavery. And what Andrew Forrest did was basically kind of get up in arms about this problem and decide that he wanted to be the person to solve modern slavery, this this sort of unique problem that is exceptional to general workings of business, he thought. And he went to Bill Gates and got his advice on how to get attention for this issue. And Bill Gates, as I'm sure people are aware, um, predominantly has worked a lot on um, health issues so his advice was around creating a big number to draw attention to the topic to get media attention to get political attention to get celebrity attention and this is what Andrew Forrest did he started an organization which began publishing an annual or sometimes a bit less often global slavery index and it is that that is responsible for things that people might recognize from the press where apparently we have 40 million slaves in the world today we have more slaves now than ever before so it's this kind of thing that started occurring through the 2010s. In the UK, you then have campaigners and politicians taking up the phrase as a way of trying to get exploitation on the political agenda, but as I argue in the book, in a way that's actually backfired, really, and undermined often laudable aims, and then being co-opted by really, really problematic movements as well. So what you see is this modern slavery idea being used to legitimise harder borders in the case of immigration policy. So, um, you know, like send people back to Calais is now couched in the idea that they're trafficking victims as a way of somehow, you know, ridiculously legitimising that or Trump saying is Mexico war is a good idea because it stops trafficking. You see corporations using modern slavery action like um, training their staff to spot the signs of slaves in their business instead of ensuring their independent trade unions representing their workers. So you start to see it like refract across all these spaces of power and actually serve the exact opposite purpose to what we might think it's serving when we see newspaper articles or hear speeches about it. 
you know, you've referred to these kind of like spot the signs sort of posters. What are some of the tropes that you kind of, are we told that it's like a, more of an urban phenomenon or something that could be found in like rural areas and settings as well? Um, so so anywhere is, is partly the answer to that. It's certainly not a, a solely urban phenomenon in, in the kind of way that it's portrayed. And you have a lot of exploitation in agriculture, for example, often because workers there will be uh, reliant on their employer for accommodation and kind of access to amenities as well as their pay. So you are in, you are automatically making people more vulnerable to abuse because you've got a big power asymmetry. And then obviously, if you don't have unionization, you don't have any route for people to protect their rights if they're also migrants that may be concerned about immigration control and so on. I mean, Ella may be able to come in on this as well, but I, there's no kind of specific geographical locus for it. But there are very clear tropes um, that are peddled by politicians and dodgy new abolitionist charities. So what we're talking about here is the new abolitionist movement rather than the abolition of historical slavery. And those tropes um, through the 2000s and still today, very much your ideal victim is a white woman, um, often depicted semi-naked. So um, playing into these ideas about innocence, your ideal victim is certainly not someone who has crossed borders illegally, which is one of the areas that the, the modern slavery story navigates very in a very difficult way, because obviously in reality, a lot of people who become exploited are undocumented migrants. But that's kind of an unpalatable story for, you know, your tabloids to say when they're doing a big splash on how we must all tackle this terrible, you know, strain of evil in our societies. They don't want to talk about what it is that has made those people vulnerable in the first place, being immigration policy. And you see a similar um, thing with the offenders, offenders being portrayed as often racialized, foreign, criminal, organized gangs. Um, so as if we are being told there is this um, individual deviancy that is causing this problem in our society. It's not the problem of our society. It's not the problem of the policies underpinning our society, our economy, any of that. It is these individual bad deviants who are often foreign. And that's essentially how that story is told. And you can really see that I talk a bit about uh, an evening standard newspaper campaign in the book and how it just like directly played into that kind of idea. It's just a, a really crude way of portraying exploitation and often fundamentally incorrect. Um, I don't know if Ella wants to jump in here with some thoughts around that, that kind of stereotyping. Yeah, one of the things that I thought was so powerful in Emily's book uh, was this sort of idea that modern slavery acts as a contaminant metaphor. So something that's sort of extrinsic to our society, a blight on it that can be cut out and removed and eliminated. And that's really powerful in two ways in particular. One is that if you approach it in that way as being a question of kind of individual evil bad apples then it detracts from the kind of the bad barrels the broken systems the ways that kind of policies and laws and interventions are actually producing vulnerability and enabling exploitation and making it harder for people affected by exploitation to seek help and redress and the other way that it's very powerful is it also it helps it make it about the other. It's people that aren't us. It's, you know, this threat from abroad. And we see that very, very clearly, I think, in particular right now in the UK in relation to child sexual exploitation and sex trafficking of British children, where for the last decade, um, very much pushed by the media, the Times in particular from the start, and then picked up on by politicians and dodgy think tanks, this idea that uh, so-called grooming gangs are a specific issue with um, Asian, particularly Asian Pakistani, Pakistani Muslim British people sort of coming into this country, polluting our society, taking our children, abusing our white girls. And although 
undoubtedly there have been horrific abuses involving you know groups of asian men there's also been horrific abuses across society and you know child sexual abuse is absolutely endemic i mean the rates are terrifyingly high and if we try and frame it as a you know a problem from outside rather than something that's so cross cutting and affected by you know our broken systems then it makes it a lot easier to not face up to the real issues and not take responsibility for tackling them and sorting them out and i think we see the exact same thing happening with modern slavery the the way sort of labor rights for example are so marginalized in conversations around you know how we prevent so called modern slavery Emily makes that really clear in her book as well that you know why why is everything being approached as not everything but the vast majority of so-called solutions are criminal justice solutions it's about increasing prosecutions it's about rescuing more victims um and when it comes to things that are framed as prevention it's typically about raising awareness but the problem here we have is that criminal justice solutions they're important but they're not sufficient and they're also not very effective so only a fraction of offenders committing the most severe exploitation will ever be identified and arrested many victims won't come forward for perfectly legitimate reasons like you know they're afraid of criminalization they're afraid of immigration detention they're afraid of the stigma they don't trust the police and often they have good reasons to think these things and awareness raising again this is something emily goes into brilliant detail about it's not really a preventative strategy it's not really effective because it assumes that people are entering into dangerous situations because they're somehow ignorant or you know don't realize the risks when actually in reality you know it's often just because of lack of better alternatives and this is something we saw over and over again in our research on labor trafficking and um that was you know looking at hundreds and hundreds of case files of people from within the EU um including the UK itself who were trafficked in the UK for labor exploitation and sort of officially identified as trafficking victims and the vast vast majority of them their pathway into this exploitation was because they were seeking work in the UK and they were seeking better opportunities so sort of simply taking them out of an exploitative context and not giving any better alternatives isn't a solution in itself and that's one of the things that kind of increasingly scares me is over the last decade we've seen this kind of dramatic increase in the number of people identified in the UK through the national referral mechanism so the sort of official system for identifying and in theory supporting trafficking victims sort of goes up and up but actually there's also much less widely talked about a recognition that the system isn't working for the people who need the support and even that kind of small fraction of people affected who are being identified and coming into this system just aren't really getting what they need so it's not enough to kind of keep focusing all attentions on these sort of reactive responses that deal deal with things when they've already got too bad need to be kind of building the sort of capability and better systems that actually stop things getting so awful in the first place if I can just jump in there as well, because um, Ella clarified so much of that in a really useful way. And I think one of the reasons I wrote the book was, I mean, generally, I wanted people to understand this topic and how it was being used really disingenuously better, but also specifically with regard to what we can broadly call the left, really seeing this idea of monsavery just being like swallowed down as as something that's not political, as this, oh, yeah, this is this like crime, this kind of unique thing that's got nothing to do with everything else and no no like critical thinking about it and it was, it was really frustrating um and so one of the things I tried to tease out in the book is how general kind of progressive aims around workers rights around unionization and indeed around sex workers rights are linked to this narrative because often what you see is that modern slavery is treated as this totally separate idea, right, both by the left and other political stripes. So 
um, as Ella said in the book, I show how it's talked about as a contaminant. So I, it was kind of a very fun part of the research going through new abolitionist texts and speeches, finding them talking about it as a parasite, as a virus, something we need to inoculate ourselves from. We need to scrub supply chains clean. So all of this language is about it being this impurity in something that's otherwise fine, this pollutant in something that's otherwise fine. And when you think that these things are happening through that idea, then the solutions logically are criminal justice ones. Of course, you just go in, you extricate the the issue, you rescue the person and everything's fine, right? You lock up the deviant. But actually, the conditions in which people work, whether that's sex work or in legal labour sectors, occur on a continuum of decent work through forms of abuse like wage theft, um, unpaid overtime, that kind of thing, right up to a very sharp end of very severe exploitation, which is where we would nowadays be calling it modern slavery because of the Modern Slavery Act of 2015. This continuum is a really important idea because there is no clear dividing line along it anywhere and people move between points on it over time especially um, people are able to move further and further along to the sharp end when they don't have rights, either because they are an undocumented migrant or because they've not got a route to protect their rights like a union or because they're criminalised like a sex worker. And when you think of it in that way, of course, part of the solution is making sure people have rights, people have routes to protect those rights, people are not considered illegal in, in what they're doing or simply existing in, in the UK. You know, thankfully, the UN Special Rapporteur on Trafficking said recently, when you have endemic labour abuses, you create a breeding ground for these severe forms of exploitation. And that is the opposite story to modern slavery. Because if the story is about the system, the solutions have to be completely different and they have to be ones that challenge the power dynamics that the people in places of power are quite enjoying. But if we allow it to carry on being this parasite, then yeah, let's just go get the parasite and everything will be fine. Yeah, um, just to jump in on that, I think that was really like well expressed. And like just to kind of talk about that in terms of sex worker rights a bit more, I just kind of want to highlight, I guess, that we have this really wild situation where like a very large swathe of the feminist movement is kind of continually pushing for um, a kind of framework of, of laws that I think everyone really acknowledges make the lives of people who sell sex harder. Like, so I'm talking about kind of the Nordic model, the criminalization of clients and the way that that is kind of supposed to ideally work is it's supposed to kind of push people out of the sex industry by making people make less money. So they get poorer. um, And as a result, they are kind of forced to stop selling sex and, and access exiting services or do something else. And like, obviously the process of making people poorer is a process of making their lives harder. It's a process of, you know, forcing them to take risks that they might otherwise not have taken. It's a process of forcing them to be more precarious and more reliant on potentially like bad actors, like dodgy landlords or dodgy bosses. Um, So we've got this situation where big feminist organisations are pushing for laws which make the lives of people who sell sex harder on the basis that this will somehow help people who are forced to sell sex. And it's just like, it is so backward. It's so backward. When you listen to, you know, like Emily talk about this, it's so, it's so, it should be so obvious to everyone that like you tackle situations of injustice and ex- exploitation by ensuring that people have more rights and more options and more resources. And so much of prostitution policy and also kind of punitive anti-immigration policies masquerading as anti-trafficking policies are doing the absolute opposite of this and yet like the government is is largely getting away with this in in progressive terms because people have bought this kind of overarching narrative about trafficking and what it is that Emily's book is so good at at taking apart. Um, I think what's really really concerning on top of everything Molly just said is the way that anti-trafficking and the whole trafficking and modern slavery narrative is deliberately and disingenuously co-opted by people to push for these policies that harm marginalised groups, including 
people who are experiencing the severe degrees of exploitation that would qualify as modern slavery. So I was in a forum yesterday that was talking about um, British survivors of trafficking and their needs. And there was, you know, a whole kind of list of issues that survivors have been encountering and not getting the support that they're legally entitled to. And yet the forum opened with Sarah Champion, who's, you know, ostensibly a Liberal MP, she's a Labour MP, saying that she had never once met someone who had sold sex giving um, informed consent and that, you know, she'd come to the position that the only way to address trafficking was by introducing the so-called end-demand model, which is what Molly was talking about there, so this kind of asymmetric criminalisation. And the fact that these people in positions of power who are kind of very much seen by many as credible voices on trafficking and exploitation are actually not just ignorant of the issues at hand, but deliberately ignoring a really, really strong body of evidence showing that these policies don't work, they don't reduce trafficking, and they do cause immense harms. And it's that kind of co-option of the trafficking and modern slavery narrative that is desperately worrying and I think Emily's book does a really good job in calling that out and there needs to be more of that because this assumption that it's kind of you know apolitical it's something that everyone should care about sort of serves to discourage people from asking questions and interrogating you know whose interests is this serving what are they actually trying to achieve because really what we've got here in this space is in my opinion, a lot of really, really good work from people who are genuinely committed to tackling exploitation, then a lot of stuff that just contributes to what Emily described as ignorance production. So, you know, regurgitating these dodgy statistics that really sort of aren't credible in the least, making these broad sweeping claims about, you know, trafficking being the fastest growing crime threat or generating X billion pounds. And some of that probably is from ignorance. And then some of that is from people who are pushing an agenda and it's not called out enough and it's got this like really deep history with regard to sex work there's an amazing book that funnily enough molly actually recommended to me originally called uh, sex slaves and discourse masters by joe dozima who she has forensically gone into this topic and i referenced some of her work in mine but in 1904 there was a the first kind of international agreement about trafficking was the international agreement for the suppression of the white slave traffic now the white slave traffic was this idea that white women were being abducted and forced to sell sex in kind of racialized countries and in Africa and places and there was actually no evidence that this was occurring but people got in a kind of moral panic about it and this this agreement in 1904 ostensibly is trying to protect, you know, poor, fragile white women from that occurring. But in fact, what it actually does is legitimise states taking down details of migrant sex workers and repatriating them, otherwise known as deporting them. And that's 1904. And, you know, nothing has changed with how the idea of trafficking, the idea of monslavery is used against sex working women, especially migrant sex workers. And uh, you can see it right through, you know, some of, I have to say this, the chapter on on this in the book was sometimes quite mind-blowing to research, like how blatant this utter co-optation that Molly and Ella are talking about is. So in the 2000s, you had a, as, as kind of anti-trafficking starts to pick up pace and there's a lot more money flowing into it from philanthrocapitalists and that kind of thing, you get this um, faith network setting itself up to tackle trafficking for sexual exploitation, whose name is Churches Alert Against Sex Trafficking in Europe. So they operate under the acronym CHASTE, which obviously means moral impurity and kind of, um, you know, no sex outside marriage and stuff like that. So it's just like really blatant what their actual interests are. And that is still happening. There's so many supposedly anti-trafficking, anti-slavery organisations saving women from sex trafficking who are actually operating from kind of faith-based, moralistic um, grounds. And I think one of the things that it's a like heartbreaking and unbelievably frustrating territory to be in when you see alleged feminists silencing the voices of sex working women and saying they can't 
uh, like just not listening to what they what what is actually needed and saying they can't possibly have consented and this kind of thing and one of the things I notice quite a lot when I'm talking to people who haven't read Molly's book Revolting Prostitutes haven't thought about this in detail is that they think that decriminalizing the sex industry will mean that trafficking is legal. I'm not sure how people do that in their head, but it happens. And it's really important to say removing things that criminalize sex workers and giving them their rights is not the same as saying that rape, that trafficking, that exploitation becomes legal. They're different things. And we can have a strategy that supports sex working women with rights and that tries to prevent exploitation happening like we have in all legal labour sectors. Mm. Researching for this podcast, I watched Juno Mack's TED Talk about some of this stuff. And it was quite interesting because I knew very little about this before. But, you know, the, of all of the different kind of prohibitionist approaches to sex work from full criminalisation to partial criminalisation, the Nordic model you've talked about, there's also this uh, the idea of like legalisation, but that this is distinct from decriminalisation, which is what sex workers tend to call for. Can, can someone just like, before we move on, just talk about the difference between legalisation as an approach and decriminalisation of the sex industry? So legalisation tends to refer to legal models where there are a lot of bureaucratic hoops for sex workers to jump through. So sex work defaults to not being legal, but there are various like hoop, like hoops you jump through that make it legal. Um, so, for example, in like a, you can work in a certain county in Nevada if you can get a job in a legal brothel, and that's like the way in which you can work legally. Um, or you know you can work in various European countries like Netherlands or Germany again like if you work um in a in a legal brothel or if you give your legal name to the police or if you you know commit to getting health checks every three months and what that means is that produces a criminalized underclass of sex workers who can't or won't follow those kinds of bureaucratic impediments so if for example you can't get a job in a brothel because um maybe say you're trans or you're a drug user and the manager has a lot of like stigma against someone with that identity, then you, you're forced to work, say, on the street or out of your own flat or in a hotel and you're criminalised. So you are subject to all the harms that um, full criminalisation brings. Conversely, decriminalisation describes a situation where like sex work is by default legal. So, you know, you can work legally on the street, you can work legally in your own house, you can work legally... Uh, sharing a flat with a friend, you can work legally visiting a hotel, you know, if you work in a brothel, you have labour rights that enable you to hold the manager to account. Um, so decriminalisation is vastly preferred by the global sex worker rights movement, because it describes a situation where there's not, you know, these, this kind of endless tick box. And like, if you, if you fail, like number 27 of this tick box of like 30 conditions, then you'll like end up being criminalised. We want something where sex workers are able to work legally. Yeah, and I'd be really interested to know um, what you think about this, Molly, actually, that one of the things I find really weird with legalisation is this idea that sex work is an easily definable kind of static circumstance. So, for example, we've been hearing a lot in the press over the last year or so about sex in exchange for rent for, for women who are having trouble paying their rent. Now, how under a legalization framework, are they going to be like counted? Are they, does that mean you've got to have health checks or does it not? Because there's only one person that you're exchanging sex with for kind of material gain. Or what if um, someone else comes into that picture? Something It's just it makes no sense. And I think the way that it's, as I explain in the book, in general, with the modern slavery story, exploitation is described as this parasite, right, as this anomalous thing that's nothing to do with the socioeconomic system. But when it comes to sex, it is the whole sector that is portrayed as the contaminant. So the solutions being identified by new abolitionists pertain to the erasure of the sector as a whole. So this criminalization of clients that Molly and Ella have mentioned, the whole sector is portrayed in that way as if it, it's... Um, the entirety of it is the contaminant rather than like exploitation within it. And I think when you actually understand the sex industry, so to speak, you understand it's not homogeneous, like that legalizing it and thinking you can like license specific bits is not going to really understand how it's working in reality. 
Yes, absolutely. And one of the things that is sort of great about legalization, as in like this bureaucratic system that we're criticizing, is it speaks really strongly to societies like weird anxieties around sex work. So Juno and I, when we were writing Revolting Prostitutes, uh, we looked up a bunch of regulations from Nevada, I think, from quite far into the 20th century, like maybe the 70s and 80s. Um, And it was stuff like, if you're a legal prostitute in Nevada, you are not allowed to use a public swimming pool. You're not allowed to have your brother visit you. Um, If you go to a new town, you have to leave before a certain time on a Friday night. And you have to like have proof that you're going to leave. You have to buy a return bus ticket or whatever and like have it on you so that if you're stopped by the police, you can like demonstrate you have papers showing you're going to leave basically. And it's just like such a kind of rich soup of our anxieties about like what prostitution means. But obviously, it's not good. It's not actually good like feminist public policy. (laughs) Wow, I did not remember that from the book. That's completely insane. I think one of the things that it shows as well, the the new abolitionist, yeah, kind of like moral fear, this rich soup of anxieties, which is such a good phrase, um, it shows is also the problem with having policies um, and campaigns made and led by people in positions of privilege who have many options available to them for what they do with their life and how they earn their money. So the idea of kind of trying to erase someone's livelihood strategy isn't understood in the same way by them. And this is something that I I think it's a thread running through the whole book, is this complete ignorance on the part of new abolitionist politicians and campaigners and so on. I mean, not uniformly, of course, that there are just not very many good options for decent work, for livelihood strategies in our economy for people that aren't basically um, kind of fortunate in various ways. So, for example, there are a couple of sectors that people might be used to hearing about in the media as having loads and loads of modern slaves, right? Hand car washes and nail bars. They have had so much press, especially in the tabloids over the last sort of three years. And I almost felt like doing a drinking game in lots of work meetings over the years because they got mentioned so many times. But when you actually look at, for example, what police find when they go and do checks on hand car washes, trying to identify whether there's modern slavery happening. Yes, there are some instances of really severe exploitation, but predominantly what they find is really um, endemic labour abuses. So no one is being paid the minimum wage pretty much. But the, the people they speak to working there say, yeah, fine, I'm getting 30, 40 quid a day. But this is the best option available to me. And could you go away, please? And in a, in a parallel, uh, I think it was in 2019, there was this BBC documentary called The Prosecutors, which was about prosecuting a woman for modern slavery offences of teenage, I think they were in their late teens, Vietnamese girls in nail bars. And I was kind of apoplectic when I was watching it because it was directed in a way that was like, here are these amazing lawyers, you know, protecting these girls and condemning this individual deviant criminal. And yes, they had not been paying um, this one in particular that I remember, which is obviously illegal. They'd been having free work from her. Um, but she, her name was Ten and she spoke to camera a couple of times or, or they were filming the interview and she said in it, I was happy there with this woman. She bought me clothes and I had food to eat. That's, those were her words. And in reality, what she had to go back to in Vietnam was nothing, was destitution most likely and, you know, possibly even really awful exploitation. You know, that's not to say it's fine for her to be working somewhere not paid Um, and so on it's not fine but give a better option rather than doing what we often do with people in the UK which is we support them with nominal money once they've been found in this kind of situation and then deport them how is that a better option it's this complete failure in this moral crusade to understand that for a huge number of people in our society in the UK and obviously in many countries around the world there is no good option And the best option is the one that they're choosing and unfortunately may include exploitation. And that is what we should be trying to solve, not kind of putting on our morality cloaks and swanning in, trying to kind of 
extricate people, rescue them, and then thinking that everything's fine. This was one of the things that came up over and over in our work on labour trafficking as well, that, you know, the vast majority of people came to the UK on the promise of work. Often the promise of work was for conditions that would be illegal by British standards, but comparatively sounded good because it was much, much better than what they could get at home. And then ended up being exploited to various degrees, some really, really horrific. Um, But despite this huge emphasis on rescue, actually the majority, so a good-sized chunk, I think it was about two and three, of the people had actually escaped by themselves. They weren't rescued by the authorities. But the problem was when they did escape, they then ended up without any safety nets. A lot of them ended up homeless and then being vulnerable to being recruited again by exploitative bosses because the options just aren't there. And I think that's one of the things that's so heartbreaking is you can't make it all about taking people out of difficult and dangerous and exploitative situations if you're not then going to provide alternatives. Exactly. And this is why um, this hypocrisy of government portrayal of, um, you know, leading the world in anti-slavery action. Theresa May, this was like her main calling card as prime minister, but it's carried on today with Boris. In fact, in the 2019 Conservative Manifesto, it has this corker of a sentence that something like the UK has always been a beacon of freedom and human rights, first in abolishing historical slavery and now in modern slavery. So it's this really strong narrative. And what you find is stuff like um, anti-slavery day is an annual day every year, uh, legally, that has to be held to kind of raise awareness of modern slavery um, that was brought in in a law in, I think, 2010, I can't remember. And government will do things like, for example, light up iconic buildings red, So it spent 12 grand in 2018 doing that on anti-slavery day and at the same time has overseen skyrocketing rough sleeping. And these things really need to be held up against each other because the modern slavery narrative would say, well, that's, you know, that's nothing to do with it, the rough sleeping, because it's all about these parasitical deviants who are coming in and exploiting people when obviously when people are destitute, they are highly vulnerable to dodgy work offers. And and this is the kind of crux of how we need to reframe this topic, which is that nobody is just randomly walking around vulnerable to being exploited. Vulnerability is constructed by politics, by kind of social mores, by economic options or lack thereof. And it's those things that really have to be looked at if we want to have a meaningful conversation about it. If we actually want to have rescue, that needs to be about decent work, about people being able to access the welfare state, about people not being criminalised and so on. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so much of, um, so much anti-trafficking material and narratives are images portraying people being kidnapped at random um, in revolting prostitutes. I think we cite the landing page of like a big anti-trafficking organisation in the US that opens with something like, imagine you're sleeping sweetly and soundly at home in your own bed when someone comes in through the window and throws a bag over your head and carries you away. And like the idea that that is like being consistently portrayed through you know through images and words as like a meaningful story of trafficking of, like of course that produces completely the wrong the wrong solutions because it as you say it speaks to this idea of like traffickers as this like anomalous evil who are acting for almost almost no rational reason and no one who is experiencing these kinds of harms needs anything other than this very simple rescue where the police burst in with guns and they take you away and you're safe and that's it and we don't need to ask anything else about any any system that got you there or any system that you enter into when you are quote unquote rescued yeah it's just it's completely ridiculous and I'm really glad that we kind of keep circling back um in this conversation to talking about the historical history of, of chattel slavery um in terms of Britain's role in it in terms of the U.S. because I think so in again in um revolting prostitutes we quote a historian who says something like, if you ask a British person about Britain's slavery, what they will talk about is abolition. And I remember like reading that quote, and it just like clicking something for me, because it's so real. And like, it's so like, oh, yeah, like, we don't talk about the 
250, 300 years of slavery before that, of where Britain was just doing slavery, the, the narrative is Britain and abolition, and Britain, you know, the idea of like Britain leading abolition and that laughable line in the Tory manifesto that you just quoted, Emily. And, and it's obviously, this is also like bizarre to be having this conversation now because all of, all of this is so fraught. Like literally, as we were recording this podcast yesterday, four people were on trial in Bristol for pulling down the Colston statue. And, you know, there's this project called Colonial Countryside where, where someone, a researcher was looking into, you know, the links between Britain's like big fancy countryside estates and colonialism and slavery. And that has been like absolutely trashed across the right wing press for, you know, like woke snowflakes trying to cancel Britain's great history, blah, blah, blah. You know, like recently the National Trust tried to like in the wake of Black Lives Matter, like I think reviewed some of the um, some of the signage on their buildings to try and like rewrite it to acknowledge that these buildings were built with the profits of slavery. And again, like these initiatives have just been like the right wing press are furious about it. And yet at the same time, they want to have this narrative that's like we are fighting modern slavery. The governing logic of this, the thing that makes these contradictions make sense is whiteness and white supremacy. So on the one hand, people want to present Britain as having this blameless past of of abolition. Uh, At the same time, people want to imply that the correct way to challenge quote unquote modern slavery is by cracking down on migration and by increasing criminalization, which increases criminalization primarily people of color. Um, And actually this this seeming contradiction makes sense because it is governed by whiteness and white supremacy and there's a very real danger in some of the modern slavery initiatives going on of um effectively encouraging racial profiling so the spot the signs type approaches um and you see it for example with nail bars the implication being you know if you see a nail bar that has Vietnamese or Chinese looking people working there you've probably spotted modern slavery and it's enormously dangerous. You can also see it playing out in terms of survivors and who's believed Uh, and I think I mean this is something that really needs to be researched a lot more and it's it's exactly for the reason that you're describing Molly that there's been a failure to have a race lens on things around modern slavery and I interviewed several people for the book and one of whom has been working on anti-trafficking for many, many years. And she um, really was clear that there is a, there has been a, so shall we say, like favouring of believing white women versus, for example, Nigerian women who are um, seeking support for being exploited. And um, there are really good stats that demonstrate that non-EU People who've been through exploitation are less likely to be given support and and be given the right uh, to have the kinds of um, support and leave that they need in order to to build a better life. It's definitely playing directly on this kind of Wilberforceization of historical slavery. It carries through to today massively, and I think one of the only ways that that kind of works is this failure to understand that the system underlying these things is the cause of them. Um, so historically, obviously, systemic racism being being the thing that generated historical slavery in this way. Um, and it's exactly as Molly says, you get this like public imagination about the kidnapped, abducted victim. America is so bad for this. I have Google alerts on human trafficking and I see all these like utterly, utterly ridiculous like newspaper articles from Kansas or wherever and you know as I note in the book a lot of journalists who write about modern slavery will use words like duped and lured all the time like she was lured to the UK by blah blah now that does very occasionally happen but to lure someone its roots etymologically are about seduction and it is not a word imbued with the idea that that person has agency themselves And it creates this really false story about what's going on. Because in reality, you know, if we tell a story where we say, oh, Monique was lured to the UK to be a nanny. And once she was here, she was kept inside and um, not paid and there was physical violence. That's a very different story to Monique had limited job opportunities and somebody offered one that could give her more than 
she could get at home. She came to the UK and there was no information about her rights. There was no trade union. There was no access to any form of support. You know, and it dispossesses people of agency, of intelligence, all of these things. And um, I speak in the book about this amazing research that I hope people replicate a lot by an academic called Peter Olayawala, who looked at exploitation of children who were um, migrating from rural to urban contexts in Nigeria to work as domestic workers and and were often being exploited. And he went and spoke to them and their parents to understand whether they knew about the risks of exploitation. Did they know what human trafficking was? Did they know that this was something that might happen to them if they took that migration decision? Because the Nigerian and UK interventions in Nigeria around this were about awareness raising, right? We just need to help these kids and their parents know that this is a risk and then they will stop sending their kids to cities to work as domestic workers and modern slavery will be solved. Um, And what he actually found was that they were well versed in the risks of exploitation. Their parents, the kids, they fully understood the situation and it was the best slash only option available for a a meaningful livelihood for potential social mobility as one of them said you know well there's no food at home so things will be bad there yeah but there's food and it's that underlying reality that is completely obscured when you read things in the press about someone being duped really we are the ones that are being duped that was emily kenway ella cobain and molly smith on radicals and conversation If you're enjoying this discussion and want to keep listening, then the unabridged version of today's and previous episodes of Radicals and Conversation can be found on patreon.com forward slash Pluto Press. Sign up today for access and for a host of other member benefits. We'll be back next month with another episode of Radicals and Conversation. But until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.